This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I am joined by Dr. Robert Lustig. He is an emeritus professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist with expertise in metabolism, obesity, and nutrition. He is one of the leaders of the current anti-sugar movement that is changing the food industry. He graduated from MIT, received his MD from Cornell, received his master's of studies in law degree at the University of California, Hastings School College of Law. He is the author of the popular books, Fat Chance, The Hacking of the American Mind, and the just released Metabolical, The Lure and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Pleasure to have you with me this afternoon. Thank you so much for carving time out of your busy schedule. That's my pleasure, Cynthia. It's part of my job now, so it's quite all right. Yeah. So talk to us about how food has largely become poison. You know, I read your your most recent book with great interest. And I think for many people, the assumption is made that if it's in the grocery store or if it's at the corner market, it's obviously healthy. And, and you and I would both agree that most of the food-like substances that people are consuming nowadays are anything but real or anything that is metabolically supportive of a healthy lifestyle or a healthy body. Well, first, you have to know what healthy means. And in order to know what healthy means, you have to know what health means. And I will tell you right now, healthcare don't know. And, you know, government don't know. And to be honest with you, modern medicine don't know. And, you know, I lived within that ecosystem for 40 years. You know, I was trained to do exactly what all the other doctors were trained to do. And then I started doing research. And what I realized was that the data that I was generating did not conform to the party line. And, um, you know, the more data, the more I realized it. And so, you know, in 2007, I started speaking out about what I thought was the biggest problem in nutrition, which was not hide the ball, sugar, you know, and uh, I got a lot of pushback for obvious reasons from many different directions, including academia, but, you know, certainly food industry. And, you know, we did more research and, you know, things continued to fall out. And what I then realized was that there was an entire treasure trove of work, of research that had been done back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, before the original dietary guidelines for Americans. And it had been basically deep sixed. Mm -hmm. And when we realized who deep-sixed it, we realized it was the food industry. Yeah. So we've been sort of living a fraud for the last 50 years. And we've watched you know, our population get sicker and sicker and chew through more and more healthcare resources. And you know, it just became painfully obvious that you know, we needed as a you know, individually and also as a society, a metabolic reset. So originally, I wrote my first book, Fat Chance, back in 2013, to dispel the standard notion that people had, which was, you are what you eat. Now, I will tell you, that was actually never stated, okay? What was stated was, tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. That was Brias Savarin back in 1825. But ultimately, that got bastardized to, you are what you eat, which are not the same thing, but, and who did it? The food industry, but that's what everyone believes for, you know, want of a better answer. Nobody else had any reason to say otherwise. I knew that that was not true. And 2013, I published Fat Chance to restate the argument. You are what you do with what you eat, what you metabolize, that metabolism is more important than calories, for instance. Okay. Calories are basically useless. And in metabolical, I basically, you know, I do my ultimate best to try to kill the calorie. And, you know, that is my goal now. I'm the unspoken leader of, you know, kill the calorie. If I will be known for anything in, you know, in my next life, you know, it will be as the guy who killed the calorie. So that chance was, you know, you are what you do with what you eat. But then over the last eight years, working in this field and working with colleagues who were working on the industry side of this, 
the public policy side of this, it became painfully apparent that there was this treasure trove of information that had been deep sixed and that the food industry was basically writing its own narrative to keep us consuming. And so then I realized that I had to rewrite the book, if you will. And the, the point of metabolical is to state you are what they did with what you eat. So beautifully said, and there's so much to unpack there. I think there's such a large degree of cognitive dissonance. It makes people very uncomfortable, not just patients, but clinicians. It makes us very uncomfortable because it bucks along with, you know, how I was trained. I trained at a big research institution myself. And certainly the information that I was given in the 1990s, both as a nurse and later as a nurse practitioner is completely contrary to what I now know and believe. And do you think it was a byproduct of, you know, we use the term multifactorial when we're in the medical environment. I think there are so many reasons for why we got so derailed. I think a great deal about what I have learned through Ansel Key's work, you know, conversations I've had with Nina Takeholtz and, and Gary Tobbs, who've done a beautiful job as well as you, kind of illustrating the history of how this has all evolved. But I, I do think a large amount of this is also exacerbated by the fact that, you know, we as healthcare professionals are given little to no education. And I know in your book, you do a really beautiful job talking about registered dietitians. And I definitely want to touch on that as well, that they've propagated and aligned themselves largely, although I do know some evolved RDs have aligned themselves with the processed food industry and big ag and all of these industries that benefit from keeping us in the dark, misinformed, and metabolically unhealthy. Indeed. You know, ultimately, dietitians can be part of the problem or they can be part of the solution. The sad part is that the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has chosen to be part of the problem. And the reason is because they get 90% of their operating budget from big food. So there are plenty of dietitians who are, quote, woke, mm -hmm. who get it, all right, who understand that it's not about calories. Okay, so what I do in the book is I basically rephrase this for them. It's not what's in the food. That's what dietitians are trained to add up because it's math. Rather, it's what's been done to the food. That's processing. And that's something dietitians are not trained to know anything about. So dietitians basically have to understand the science. They have to understand the science of nutrition, sure. They also have to understand the science of food processing, food science, if you will. And they're not the same. A lot of dietitians, a lot of doctors think they are the same. Nutrition is what happens between the mouth and the cell. Food science is what happens between the ground and the mouth. And what we've learned is that when you alter the food science, you alter the nutrition. So you need to understand how those two work in concert. The problem is when you alter the nutrition, you don't alter the food science. All right, because the food science is upstream. So that's where the efforts have to be. And so that's why I spend an entire part of the book, part four, on explaining what they did to the food to make it poison. Now, people say, well, food's not poison, food's food. Well, actually, that's not true. All right. And I'll give you, you know, my favorite example, because it's the easiest example for me to talk about since it's my research. Okay, and that's sugar. All right. So when you talk about poison, you're talking about what? Keel over and die? Yeah, that's one kind of poison. That's an acute poison. And there are plenty of acute poisons, you know, cyanide, you know, ricin, sarin, you know, VX gas, you know, things like that. Okay. That's all true. And that's, you know, parts per billion, keel over and die, all true. But there are also chronic poisons. They don't kill you immediately. They kill you over time. So arsenic or carbon tetrachloride or tobacco smoke, okay? You know, one cigarette won't kill you, but, you know, 10,000 over 10 years certainly might and will. Well, food, processed food is in that same category. And in particular, because it carries a chronic toxin and that chronic toxin is called sugar. So you say, wait a second, sugar, it's energy. Well, actually it's not. If you burn it in a bomb calorimeter, it's energy. It releases four calories per gram, just like carbohydrate does, just like protein does. Those are all four calories per gram when you burn them in a bomb calorimeter. But we're not bomb calorimeters, mm -hmm. all right? And that's where the dietitians get it wrong because that's what K-1 
calories are is what do you get when you burn them in a bomb calorimeter? Who cares? Because we're not bomb calorimeters. Now, turns out sugar, fructose, the molecule in sugar that is sweet, the molecule that is enticing, molecule that is, in fact, addictive, also inhibits three separate mitochondrial enzymes. One called AMP kinase, which is responsible for manufacturing new mitochondria and keeping them up to date and fresh. Number two, ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is necessary for being able to oxidize fatty acids to make ATP out of them, which is the mitochondria's job. So if you're inhibiting it, you're inhibiting mitochondrial function. And number three, carnitine palmitoyl transferase one which is the shuttle mechanism by which fatty acids get into the mitochondria for burning in the first place. The transport is through a molecule called carnitine, which I know as a cardiology preventative nurse, you know lots about, okay? But you have to regenerate the carnitine and the molecule, that the enzyme that does that is the CPT1. Well, fructose inhibits CPT1 through its effects on malonyl-CoA via uric acid. So, Two direct inhibitions and one indirect inhibition of mitochondrial function. So you say fructose is energy because it generates four calories per gram. But if fructose stops you from being able to make ATP in your cells, how is that energy? So this whole concept of calories just has to go through the friggin' window, okay? My job is to kill the calorie the Economist magazine published a wonderful paper, an article last year called The Death of the Calorie, you know, explaining all of this in, in scientific terms. Okay. Bottom line is if your dietitian believes in calories, fire them. Mm-hmm. That simple. Fire them or worse. Okay. Because that means they're only focused on the math, not the science. And this is where. The dietitians either get on the bus or get off the bus. So, you know, if there are any dietitians out there listening, go ahead. All right. I'm calling you out now. You know, email me. We can have the debate. Okay. And I will win. I promise. I'm so glad that you're having this discussion. And it is probably the most common question I get on social media because I talk a lot about intermittent fasting. People say, well, how many calories a day do you eat? I was like, I don't count calories. My body doesn't recognize the calories. And one of the quotes in the book is calories are the industry's shield. It's how they hide from culpability. And I think that's really profound, you know, for people that are listening, if you still embrace the calories in calories out that seco, or you don't think that there's more to it than that, it's just a little too convenient to think that that's all our bodies recognize. Right. So, you know, people say, well, you know, you eat too much, you exercise too little. Okay. And I'm not arguing that. I mean, we do eat too much. We eat, you know, 300 to 400 calories more than we used to 25 years ago. That's true. And exercise too little. You know, there's some data to actually support that, although it's a little bit fuzzier. The question is why? Not do we, but the question is why do we? And the answer is leptin resistance. So there is this hormone made by your fat cells called leptin. And leptin, when your fat cells fill up with fat, your fat cell makes leptin, it goes into the bloodstream, goes to the brain and says to the brain, hey, I've got enough energy on board to engage in expensive metabolic processes because I'm not starving. Leptin means I'm not starving. So I can burn energy at a normal rate. Therefore, I can exercise and will want to. I can go through puberty. I can go through pregnancy because I can carry a baby to term because there's enough energy on board to be able to do it. Starved people can't carry a baby to term. Their leptin levels are low and it keeps their brain from actually being able to support a pregnancy. So leptin signaling tells your brain, I'm not starving. Therefore, defective leptin signaling tells your brain, I am starving. Obese people are not getting the leptin signal. They got plenty of leptin, but it's not getting to the brain. It's not, the brain's not interpreting it. So they have what we call leptin resistance, high leptin, but low leptin effect. And because they have high leptin and low leptin effect, their brains tell their bodies, hey, I need more leptin. So I need to eat more. 
And it also tells their muscles, hey, I'm starving. So you better sit on the couch instead of going and playing tennis. So the gluttony and the sloth that we associate with obesity is really a manifestation of a biochemical process called leptin resistance. So then you say to me, okay, well, all right, that's fine. Well, what's causing the leptin resistance? How come the leptin is not working? And the short answer to that is the hormone insulin. Insulin blocks leptin. Okay, now insulin is the hormone that drives the energy into fat in the first place. So it's telling your fat cell store. But normally your insulin tells your brain, hey, I'm in the middle of metabolizing a meal. I don't need any more. So that's part of the stop signal. So insulin's kind of weird because it tells your fat cell one thing, store, and it tells your brain the opposite, stop. Except when your brain is insulin resistant, then now the insulin doesn't work and now your leptin doesn't work. And now you keep eating like there's no tomorrow. So insulin resistance causes leptin resistance, which causes both gluttony and sloth. In other words, that your biochemistry drives your behavior. So what we learned to do at UCSF in our, in our obesity clinic, we did this for 17 years while I was director of the obesity clinic, get the insulin down. When you get the insulin down, now the leptin can be seen. Now the leptin works. And now guess what? Your food intake goes down and your exercise goes up spontaneously by itself. And we've done all the controlled studies to demonstrate this pathway, this mechanism. So then you say, okay, well, so the insulin's high, so we got to get the insulin down. Well, what made the insulin go up? And that's where we get to sugar. Yeah. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data, and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. And it's interesting to me as I've watched patient population become increasingly sicker, more diseased over the last 20 plus years and how we're starting to see a shift where there's more focus on the hormones that are mitigating a lot of these behavioral choices and recognizing that it's not that someone doesn't want to stop eating. It's that their brain, as you mentioned, and their stomach and their fat cells, there's this lack of communication. It explains why when my children were younger, they noticed, and they were asking, you know, as young children do, they ask, questions just really from a place of wanting clarification why someone that they saw sitting at a restaurant had so much food in front of them and they were obviously morbidly obese and having to explain that there's a hormone miscommunication going on in their bodies. And so I think when, especially as a healthcare provider, when you can look at it from that perspective, it gives you profound pause in terms of how you want to view what is growing to be an increasingly, you know, diseased population. I think the statistic I looked at was 88% of Americans have metabolic syndrome, have this dysregulation. That's unbelievable. You're really an outlier if you don't. That's right. You know, in fact, it's much more common to have metabolic dysfunction than not nowadays. And all you have to do is look at the data on the eight chronic metabolic diseases that are due to mitochondria. And here they are, type 2 diabetes. Uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. These are eight diseases are the diseases of mitochondrial dysfunction. And that's why they tend to travel together. Because if your mitochondria are not working in one organ, chances are they're probably not working in another organ also. And so that's why these eight diseases have cropped up to basically take over healthcare. And that's why it is breaking the medical bank. Worse yet, and this is you know the point I try to stress in the book, there's no pill for this because there's no pill that gets to the mitochondria and makes it work. The only thing you can do is prevent the mitochondrial dysfunction by preventing the toxin from reaching it. Well, that means cut your sugar increase your fiber because fiber also is important in terms of inhibiting sugar absorption early on. And it also helps feed the gut, you know, in terms of uh, feeding the microbiome, which has its own beneficial effects in terms of insulin suppression and immune suppression as well. So bottom line, you need to have a low sugar, high fiber diet. That's what we need. That's called real food. Unfortunately, that's not what the 10 major food conglomerates are selling. They're selling a high sugar, low fiber diet. That's called processed food. And so what's to come back to the very first question you asked me about what's healthy. So the FDA doesn't have a definition for healthy. The USDA doesn't have a definition for healthy. They're trying to come up with a definition for healthy. I actually, in the book, propose a definition for healthy. Six words, two clauses, six words protect the liver, feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. Any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And that's actually what the empiric data bear out. And I show in the book how that works. Example, juice. So juice is not as bad as soda. That's true. It's still bad, but it's not as bad as soda. And I agree with that. Okay, but it's still bad. Now, the juice companies are saying, oh, got vitamin C, right? You know, 
quick energy raises your blood sugar, especially if you're hypoglycemic, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, all garbage, all garbage. Juice does have soluble fiber. The inulin, the pectins, okay, juice still has those. That's good. But it doesn't have the insoluble fiber. That's been removed. The insoluble fiber is the cellulose, the stringy stuff, okay? You need both because when you have both, the insoluble fiber, like the cellulose, forms like a latticework on the inside of your duodenum. And the soluble fiber, like the pectins and the inulin, plug the holes in that latticework. So together, they form an impenetrable secondary barrier that lines your duodenal, your intestinal lumen. You can actually see it on electron microscopy, a whitish barrier. And what that barrier does is it prevents early absorption of simple sugars, glucose, fructose, sucrose, from getting into the portal vein to going to the liver, thereby protecting your liver. But if you don't have the cellulose because it's been stripped away because it's juice or because you put it in a smoothie machine, a Vitamix or a Breville, you've basically chopped that latticework up into smithereens. It can't form that latticework, that fishnet. So you can't assemble that barrier. So you still end up flooding the liver because you can't block it. Now, the soluble fiber will still be there. It will go further down the intestine. The intestinal bacteria will be able to metabolize it for its own purposes because that's the food for the bacteria. And they will turn it into short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate, and those are good. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's good, all right? And those suppress insulin and those also suppress your cytokine response. So that's actually important for COVID. So those are good things, but you still poisoned your liver. And so when you look at the data, the empiric data on juice, it's not as bad as soda, but it's still bad, okay? And I can show you a zillion meta-analyses that show that juice predisposes you, causes diabetes as well. Well, and I think that in so many ways, it's thought of as being so benign. You know, I recall, you know, I'm rounding with the cardiology group I work for in the hospital, sometimes the ICU and the cardiology step-down units. And what were my cardiac patients being given for breakfast? It was white bread with uh, faux butter, because God forbid you give them real butter. And there was always juice, you know, they had their choice of juice, and then they always had soda. And I thought to myself, what is going on that we have gotten to a point where we think that these things are beneficial for our patients? And the fiber piece is one that even myself, as I was reading your book, and I eat quite a bit of vegetables, I'm very diligent about that, non-starchy vegetables, really caused me a pause because I believe that fiber sometimes gets a bad rap. The irony is I was thinking about those fiber one bars as I was reading your book, not because I consume them. I think I've only consumed one once and it made me so gassy. It was distressing. But the point being that fiber is thought of as being, I think in many ways, a negative thing. And yet, you know, what you're clearly delineating is how critically important it is to help protect the integrity of our digestive system and ultimately our blood sugar, our liver, and our gut health. Right. Well, you know, the fact is the food industry doesn't want you to like fiber. All right. They very specifically don't because fiber means decreased eating time for food. You know, it doesn't last as long on the shelf. And so the more fiber it has, you know, the quicker it will spoil. So it's easier to squeeze it, freeze it, last forever. You've turned a food into a commodity that you can sell on the commodities exchange. And so since it doesn't go bad, you know, it's there forever. So, you know, let the price work. So the bottom line is fiber works against the food industry's profit interests, but fiber works for our health interests. So this is a direct, you know, contradiction between what's good for us versus what's good for them. And ultimately what, you know, when it comes down to processed food, whatever's good for them is bad for you. And whatever's good for you is bad for them. This is a war. Okay. The difference is that it is an asymmetric war because you got to eat, right? And it's also an asymmetric war because they have the information and you don't, and they're winning. And they like to keep consumers ignorant to what is actually going on. Exactly. You know, one of the things I love that you kind of alluded to and discussed in the book is the role of big pharma. And for anyone that's listening, you know, we have largely conditioned our patient population that a symptom requires a pharmaceutical drug. 
And so big pharma has profited enormously off of our health. And so one of the statistics I wanted to make sure I shared with listeners of the top 11 pharmaceutical companies, the net profits are $75 billion a year. The industry is two thirds of the FDA's budget. There are over 1300 lobbyists in Washington, DC to push their agenda. And they spend more on marketing than they do on research and development. So they do everything they can to drive our desire to ask for prescriptive medications instead of really changing the way that we fuel our bodies and live our lives. And this is incredibly distressing. The other thing that I thought was interesting is for every $1 of research, Big Pharma spends $19 on promotions and advertising. That's right. So, I mean, you know, they know where their bread is buttered, as it were. You know, that's what makes them money. And they're not doing it because they're losing it. That's for sure. So, you know, we have to basically, you know, look askance at, you know, at their practices and determine, you know, why are they doing this and why is this affecting us? And what I try to do in the book is basically lay that out so that people can understand what the issues are. Ultimately, big pharma has generated a pill for, you know, uh, type 2 diabetes. They've generated a pill for hypertension. They've generated a pill for cardiovascular disease. They've generated a pill for, you know, just about everything. Now we even have a medicine for dementia. Whether it works or not is another story. The bottom line is these pills, statins, oral hypoglycemics, antihypertensives, they're not treating the disease. They are treating the symptom of the disease because the disease is actually subcellular. It's going on inside the cell. Mitochondrial dysfunction is sort of the outgrowth of all of that. But there are actually eight subcellular pathologies, and those pills don't touch any of them. And here they are. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four, insulin resistance. Five, membrane instability. Six, inflammation. Seven, methylation. Eight, autophagy. These eight subcellular pathologies are the difference between whether you will be 110 playing tennis or 40 years old with two stumps on a dialysis machine waiting for your next stroke. Those eight subcellular pathologies, I call them in the book, the hateful or the grateful eight. When you look at the molecular mechanisms by which those occur, there are no drug targets, but they all respond to food. But what kind of food they respond to? omega-3s, they respond to, you know, vitamin D, they respond to, you know, a host of other, you know, components in food, and all of them are killed by fructose. They're all killed by sugar, all right? So the bottom line is, if you want those eight pathologies to be working for you instead of against you, you have to eat real food. So the pharma industry doesn't want you to know they're just treating symptoms of disease rather than the actual disease. So, you know, this is the problem. This is the dichotomy. Okay. In order to solve a problem, you have to work upstream of the problem. An easy analogy, an easy metaphor, which I start the book with, there's a wasp buzzing around your attic. What do you do? Kill a wasp or find the wasp's nest? You have to work upstream of a problem to solve a problem. Working downstream of a problem only solves the result of the problem. It doesn't solve the cause of the problem. And if you want this problem to go away, you have to deal with the cause, not the result. And we're not doing that. And we haven't done that for the last 50 years, which is why modern medicine has gone to hell in a handbasket. I agree. And, you know, it's interesting because you bring up so many different nuances to this problem. A lot of it's policy related. A lot of it you know, requires that the government actually take a stand whether or not that's more easily said than done, you probably would agree that it would be like moving mountains. But what are some of the things that, you know, the USDA could be doing to help from a nutritional standpoint that would be of benefit? And what are some of the impediments to this actually happening? Because there are some financial things that are driving, you know, continuing on this path and kind of pretending to play ostrich and dig our heads in the sand and pretend there isn't actually a larger issue. Right. I couldn't agree more. So in the book, I describe, you know, all these issues and people ask me all the time, like if you had a magic wand and you could like do one thing, 
you know, what would you get the most bang for your buck out of to try to fix this problem? If you could fix one thing. And what I say is I would get rid of food subsidies. Mm-hmm. I would get rid of all food subsidies because they distort the market. That's the nature of food subsidies is to distort the market, right? And there's no economist on the planet that believes in distorting the market. Let the market work. I agree with that. Even libertarians should be able to agree with that. So food subsidies do not make sense. Now, once upon a time, food subsidies did make sense. That was 1933. We had a depression. We had a dust bowl. We had a destitute population in the American Southwest, and we had all the food in the Northeast. We had to get the food from the Northeast to the Southwest. And the problem was, if you just put the food on the grain, you know, the cargo railroad cars, by the time it reached the Southwest, it would all have gone rancid. So the processed food industry kicked into high gear and started processing all the wheat and all the barley and everything, and basically put it into 10 pound and the sugar, and put it into 10 pound bags and shipped it that way. And then they would bake it up when they, you know, where they got. And, and we saved an entire population. And you know what? That made sense. And they, the subsidies rewarded those companies for doing this. And that made sense all the way through World War II. But after World War II, we didn't have a dust bowl. We didn't have a depression. We didn't need those policies to stay in place, but the food industry had figured out, hey, we can make money doing this. And so they lobbied and we doubled down and we actually supported even further subsidies. And then in 1971, Richard Nixon, you know, carrying on Johnson's war against poverty, you know, realized that fluctuating food prices cause political unrest. And so he told his agriculture secretary, Earl Rusty Butts, love that name, okay, <laughs> make food cheap. And Butts went out to the heartland to Nebraska and Kansas and Iowa and said basically three things, row to row, furrow to furrow, get bigger, get out. That was his you know, way to fix this problem. And so what that did was that ushered in the era of monoculture. So that's why all the corn is in Iowa and all the cattle are in Kansas. Cattle used to be in Iowa, you know, living on the farm and pooping, you know, on the farm. And the poop was the fertilizer for the farm. Okay. And that worked. Okay. Then we moved the cattle to Kansas. Now the poop is in Kansas and nothing to do with it. Okay. Except make the other cows sick. So we have to give them antibiotics to keep them alive. You know, otherwise, you know, succumbing to some GI dysentery because, you know, all the CAFOs are, you know, completely overrun. And we have all the corn in Iowa and it's got to get sprayed with nitrogen fertilizer because there's no nitrogen because the cows are in Kansas and there's no poop. All right. So the nitrogen fertilizer, you know, makes the corn grow. That's fine, except for one problem. Okay, it's growing in dirt rather than soil. So the soil's dead, but the corn grows. But the problem is that the nitrogen runoff creates nitric oxide, which is the worst greenhouse gas. You know, everybody talks about methane in the cows. The mm-hmm. nitrous oxide is way worse, way worse. It has 250 times the heat trapping capacity of carbon dioxide, and it lasts 114 years. So the more nitrogen fertilizer we spray, the worse our climate gets, okay? And all of this occurred because of the change in our food system to promote and uh, procure and to cheapen the cost of processed food. So how can you undo that? How can you unravel that? The answer is don't make it so cheap for the food industry to make processed food. Get rid of the food subsidy. So could we do that? And the answer is absolutely we could. People say, wait a second, that would make food more expensive. Well, the Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley actually did this modeling exercise back in 2007. What would the price of food look like if we got rid of all food subsidies? And it turns out price of food wouldn't change, except for two items, which would go up, corn and sugar, exactly what we would want to go up. So to me, the first thing that has to be done is get rid of food subsidies. The problem is only government can do that. Problem is government doesn't want to do that. And the reason is because the processed food industry owns the government. 
Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Out of curiosity and for the benefit of the listeners, do you know how many items are actually subsidized right now? I'm not sure how many, but there are quite a few. I mean, yeah, basically corn, wheat, soy, sugar. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's no, proliferative in the no, industry. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, it was thought to be an altruistic and kind thing to do is turned into, you know, monocropping on so many levels is detrimental. You know, I had Rob Wolf on and he was talking about the, how that's really impacted things adversely from an agricultural perspective. And yet, and this could be a segue into talking about meat, but the reality is that there's a lot of suppression of information so that people aren't able to make good decisions. And this just kind of propagates one after another. It's like one seemingly benign decision, 
you know, leads to a proliferation of poor decisions. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, American history is filled with this kind of thing. You have, you know, ostensibly the right reasons for instituting a specific policy measure, and then people figure out how to corrupt it. And that's what we've got. So we have to basically dismantle that, which means we have to dismantle our current food system model. The food industry should be rewarded for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. Now, they say, well, then they would not make money. And the answer is actually they would make probably more money if we rewarded them for doing the right thing. The problem is they're scared. They don't want to go there because, you know, any change is bad as far as they're concerned. Example, look at seatbelts. Okay. Seatbelts save lives. Yes, of course they do. All right. 1968, Australia instituted seatbelt laws, saved lives. They had the data. The big three, now the big two, in part because of this, kicking and screaming throughout the entire 1970s, did not want a seatbelt law. Finally, in 1979, there was an act of Congress that all new cars built in America had to have seatbelts. So did seatbelts save lives? No, because there was no mandate to wear them. Okay, so the seatbelts don't do a damn thing if you don't wear them. So it took Mothers Against Drunk Driving, working through the 1980s, to petition every state house in America that the seatbelt use was mandatory, you know, click it or ticket, right? And so now do seatbelts save lives? Absolutely, all right? So you have to have the education, you have to have the implementation, and you have to have the correct implementation strategy. Now, could we do that for food? Yes, we could. Right? And in the book, I outline what each stakeholder in this argument has to be able to you know, come up with and to produce in order to make it work. And if we all did it together, it would absolutely work. But you know, that means everyone has to work together. And right now, no one's working together. No, absolutely not. And you know, I guess one of the questions I have, because I trained in inner city of Baltimore and and had a kind of an eye-opening perspective on how people in urban centers really don't have access to a lot of the things that us suburbanites take for granted. So for individuals who've grown up, you know, eating out of, you know, the processed food industries, you know, treasure trove of options, and that's what they've eaten from the beginning of their life to the end of their life. How do we get real food to people, even if they don't want it, or even if they don't see the value in those changes? Because you, one of the things that I was privy, and I'm sure you have as well, you know, being, you know, inside of a a large U.S. city was, you know, this kind of disparity that you see in a lot of urban environments where people have this legacy of, you know, multi-generational people that are dealing with the same health problems that are just getting worse with each subsequent generation, so they think it's genetic <laughs> because, mm-hmm. oh, my mother had diabetes. So, of course, I'm going to get it. Yeah, because you ate the same crap. That's why, <laughs> you know, it's not genetic. It's environmental, but you live in the same environment. So don't be surprised. So the short answer to this is that there has to be a policy directive to making this happen. And we can divide policy directives into two forms, carrots and sticks, inducements and punishments. And what the data show is that no inducement works, no punishment works. But if you yoke the inducement and the punishment together and do both at the same time, that is what Cass Sudstein and Michael Thaler you know, uh, called nudge. They wrote a book called Nudge about the carrot and the stick together, yoked. Okay. Example. And I afford this example in the book. 1977, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Scandinavian countries, huge alcohol problem. Okay. And it was a problem on both sides of the ledger. It was a problem on the positive side of the ledger in terms of people calling in on their benders, you know, on Monday morning because they'd been drinking all weekend. Okay. And it was also a problem on the negative side of the ledger because of car accidents and cirrhosis of the liver. Okay. So these three countries recognizing the problem banded together and passed two pieces of related yoked legislation. The first was they nationalized all the liquor stores. So everyone sold the same fare at the same price. You couldn't go someplace else and buy it cheaper. The price was the price. The second piece of legislation was they 
taxed high alcohol spirits, and they use the money from the tax to subsidize low alcohol beer. So zero-sum game for the countries. They didn't make any money off of it. Okay, But what they did was they provided the punishment, the tax, with the inducement, the subsidy. Okay, Differential subsidization, it's called. Right? And lo and behold, the entire population of Norway, Sweden, Denmark gravitated toward low alcohol beer. And sure enough, productivity went up and car accidents and cirrhosis of the liver went down. And they plotted that over a 20-year period and showed the decline, and then it leveled out, and it's still low. And so those policies are still in place today if you go to visit those countries, because it worked, right? Carrot and stick. So how could you do this for the American food industry? Why couldn't we tax soda and use the money from the tax to subsidize water, as an example? So there are things we could do. There are ways to make this happen. There are ways to provide inducements that basically you couldn't, you know, make them an offer they can't refuse, right? In addition, we can get insurance to play. So what if people ate healthier and the insurance company paid for the healthy food, but actually provided a tax or an increase in fees if people ate less well, okay? So there's an inducement to try to eat healthier. I work with a company, a startup that has built a digital platform called Fugal, F-O-O-G-A-L, which I describe in the book, which is basically a platform that ties four stakeholders together, the patient, the doctor, the grocery store, and the insurance company to provide healthy food and have it paid for by the insurance company. And the insurance company is happy to do it because the cost of the food is one-tenth the cost of the medicine, and the insurance company gets to keep the rest. Incredible incentive. So there are ways to do it. Okay, we have to want to. And, you know, the problem is at this point, people are still on calories. Yes. So they think it's, you know, your own fault, which it's not. And so that's why I had to write the book is to explain what the real problem is. But, you know, haters going to hate. Well, I think it comes down to the significant degree of cognitive dissonance that people want to believe what they want to believe. And whether it's hanging on to that calories in, you know, we call it SECO, calories in, calories out. And that's the mentality they want to ascribe to. I know just personally, I mean, there is not one day on social media that I don't get a question about calories and having to dispel on like it's it's more about hormones than about calories. But people don't really, you know, and insulin. Yes. It's all about insulin. Yeah. And calories have very little to do with insulin because the thing that has the most calories is fat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Generates the lowest insulin response. Someone that wears a continuous glucose monitor intermittently throughout the year. It's been amazing to in a metabolically healthy individual to see the impact of different types of macronutrients. Now, I want to be respectful of your time, but I did get quite a few questions about seed oils. There were quite a few people who were curious to know what your opinion was on seed oils, you know, which are these these oils that are touted as being, you know, superior to other types of oils. Garbage. (laughs) Exactly. Seed oils are primarily Mm omega-6s, linoleic acid, and they are, you need omega-6s. I'm not saying you don't. Okay. Omega-6s are the precursors for arachidonic acid, which is the primary driver of inflammation. Okay. It gets turned into prostaglandins, other compounds that are involved in you know, the inflammatory response. If you don't have an inflammatory response, you'll be eaten by the maggots. You know? So you need inflammation. You need to be able to generate inflammation. But it turns out the more omega-6s, the more inflammation. And we now know that inflammation is bad for cardiovascular health and for you know, longevity. So you know, we are supposed to have an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of about between one to one and three to one. We currently have an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of about 20 to one, in some cases, 25 to one. All right, so we need to bring the omega-6s down and bring the omega-3s up. Well, the omega-6s are what's in seed oils because you can put those on a shelf. And the omega-3s, unfortunately, you know, they rot and they smell like fish, you know? And so they don't really go into processed food very easily. And so... Basically, if you're eating a processed food diet, 
you're not getting your omega-3s and you're getting way too many omega-6s. And guess what? You're going to get sick from that. Yeah, I think that they are probably the worst thing next to sugar. You know, sugar is the number one, but distinctive number two, you know, based on what I've been seeing the last several years are, you know, soybean oil, I think Ben Bickman was saying is the number one consumed fat in the United States. Because we have a lot of soybeans because they're a commodity. Yep. Yeah. So this is the problem. And, you know, we were told that these were good things. Oh, vegetable oil is good because it's not animal fat. Well, you know what? Actually, animal fat is cardiovascularly neutral. Saturated fat is not good for you. I'm not making it good for you. It's not bad for you. Okay. It's in the middle. All right. There's a seven classes of fats. Okay. And here they are in order of good to bad, right? Omega-3s, save your life. Uh, Monounsaturates, okay, generate PPR alpha in the liver, which is a fuel gauge in your liver. Number three, polyunsaturated fatty acids. The problem with them is they easily turn into trans fats when you fry them too hot. Uh, Number four, saturated fat, cardiovascularly neutral, but very good to fry in. Mm -hmm. Number five, medium chain triglycerides. Now everybody wants MCTs to work and they can work but only if you haven't also eaten a lot of saturated fat with it, because then your liver gets overwhelmed and then you end up with fatty liver. Number six, omega-6s, which again, pro-inflammatory. And finally, number seven, trans fats, which are the devil incarnate. But we know that now and they've come out, they're coming out of our food. All right, so seven different classes of fats. They're all nine calories per gram. Calories are the same. Okay, one will save your life, one will kill you. Okay, and everything in between. So calories are useless. Calories are worthless. Okay. It's the biochemistry of the molecule. That's called science. Dietitians learn science. I've been so thrilled and excited. I could talk to you for hours. I want to be respectful of your time. So what are you doing that's new? Obviously your book just came out fairly recently. What else are you up to? Oh, I'm, I'm up to a lot of stuff. I figured. <laughs> I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I am the chief medical officer of four separate companies. and We are evaluating different ways to try to improve metabolic health. I am working with an international food conglomerate to basically redo their entire portfolio to make metabolic health its North Star. It is outside the United States, but to sort of as a role model for other companies to be able to come, uh, you know, to do. And I'm also an advisor to several companies that are, you know, in the metabolic health sphere, you know, looking for instance, at continuous glucose monitoring and, you know, other facets of uh, metabolism that might uh, help uh, a surgical company that uh, is using magnets to change uh, GI physiology to benefit uh, obese patients, various things. Well, that sounds amazing. How can my listeners connect with you, purchase your new book, which is going to be on my list of must reads for 2021? What's the easiest way to connect with you on social media or off your website? Well, so I have a website, robertlustig.com. The book has its own website, metabolical.com. They're linked. The reference list for the book is on metabolical.com because the reference list is 1,054 references and would have basically taken up 70 pages and $5 per book. So we put it online instead. You know, bottom line is I'm very available. I'm easy to find. I'm easy to reach. If you're going to buy Metabolical, I prefer you buy it at a bookstore, not from Amazon. Okay. And the reason is because we have to support our local bookstores because bookstores are happiness. People learn in bookstores. They don't learn on Amazon. All right. And I promise you, you'll be happier walking into a bookstore. So please support your local bookstore. You know, I have a Twitter account. I have a LinkedIn account. I try to stay off Instagram. That's kind of a bad place to be. And God knows you'll never find me on Reddit, (laughs) but I'm easy to find. Fair enough. Well, it's been a pleasure this afternoon. As I said before, I could talk to you all day long. You are speaking my language and obviously talking about things I'm really passionate about. Thank you again for your time. My pleasure, uh, Ms. Thurlow. You know, bottom line is we healthcare professionals, okay, we need to get woke. We need to, you know, stick together. We can help solve this crisis, but only if we know what we're doing. So thank you for your advocacy. 
Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.